It is uh, good to be with you again. I'm uh, playing the role of single parent dad this weekend. My wife uh, studied down at uh, College Station, Texas A&M University. Yeah, there's always someone who says something there, so I'm a foreigner. I know there's <coughs> hollering or hooping or something. Anyway, and um, one of the profound ministries that influenced and shaped her life spiritually was the Baptist Student Mission. There we go, BSM. Baptist Student Mission, which is celebrating 100 years this weekend. Although that's not actually true because they started in 1920, so they were celebrating it last year, but because of COVID, couldn't have the get-together. And so when my wife was a student at Texas A&M, she got involved in a Christian praise band that would travel from church to church and, and bring praise music. And so many of the band members are reuniting. And so she took our oldest daughter, Kaylee, uh, down to uh, Texas A&M to uh, enjoy the festivities uh, over this weekend and now are making their way back from College Station this morning back here. Um, the reason we didn't all go was because uh, we showed our youngest daughter, Adrielle, the schedule and she didn't approve of any of the events. Um, <laughs> She uh, she uh, needed something for that was more on her level, and we just thought it was wise to, uh, uh, why don't I stay here? So I'm here with our youngest, and uh, Vanessa and Kaylee are making their way home this morning. So um, this is Vanessa. If she needs me, I'm just going to leave this here. If you're wondering what that's for, just in case. She said I had to have my phone with me, so there it is. It's off, but it's there. <laughs> I mean, I can't do two things at once. And uh, Adriel is in a new class. Um, this two weeks ago started the new. She's now in elementary school rather than uh, in the children's area. And so shortly after we're done with your permission, I'm going to slip out and get her because uh, she's just in a new situation and that would be helpful. So if I don't get to talk to some of you, please forgive me, but I will be back next week. Vanessa will be back. We'll be all uh, put back together and so on. But uh, I'll probably slip out um, you know, I'll probably go over and then slip out early, right? I mean, that's how it works. So, I don't know. <clears throat> Jim, thank you for your uh, prayer this morning and for uh, uh, the privilege it is to be here uh, with you and look into God's word together. I want you to consider a very simple question, uh, a question with more than one answer, but uh, the question is this, what is God like? What is he like? I mean, we just spent time in prayer uh, praying to someone who we, 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 we don't see, right? I mean, we, we, we didn't see God in that sense. We lifted up the needs of the class and so many of the members. We thank God for some of the blessings that we've seen and prayers answered. Uh, we've looked to him for help and for hope. And so what's he like? Was he listening what kind of God is the God that we love and serve? G give that question a little bit of thought as we're uh, studying this morning, looking into God's word. What is he like? I would submit to you that the Bible answers that question on every page. Some pages, it's explicit. The text is literally telling us what God is like. Uh, 
And in some cases, the text, the the Bible, uh, is implicit. That is, it is showing God interacting with people or with nations, and we're seeing what he's like by following his interactions. And so I would submit that studying God's, God's word is always helping to answer the question of what God is like. And so we want to examine that a little bit uh, more this morning, and you'll see sort of where we're going. <laughs> Harry, I apologize. I had no idea what to tell you when you asked what, what we were. I, I will know by the time we're done what, what, we, what we did. But until then, I, I don't know. I would just invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bibles with you, Exodus chapter 20, you are turning to the Ten Commandments. And uh, just a little bit of a reminder, you remember that uh, we really start to understand the story of the Old Testament with God's call to Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah are this couple that have no children, and God says, I'm going to pick you as this family, as this couple to build a nation from. And so we start to see that happen over time through the book of Genesis. And by the end of the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham's family, by this time uh, Jacob and Joseph ultimately, uh, are in Egypt and living down there because of famine. And you remember some of the details of, of the story there. And then in the book of Exodus, uh, it occurs 400 years later. And for 400 years, this family of Abraham, uh, really four generations later, has been living in Egypt, and God has blessed them greatly. And as a result, they have gone from a family now to a nation. Not exactly sure how long, but Exodus chapter 1 reminds us that God blessed them exceedingly. In other words, it was unnatural growth. It it was incredibly rapid how God had blessed uh, the people of, of, uh, uh, we call them the Hebrews in the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people, uh, the people ultimately descendants of Abraham. And and they find themselves in the best land in Egypt known as Goshen, and, and they're living there and they've greatly increased. And so if you will, a family went in and 400 years later, a nation comes out. That is, they eventually get enslaved. They cry out to God, God raises up a deliverer named Moses, and Moses eventually leads them out. You'll remember there's 10 plagues involved in that, the crossing of the Red Sea. Moses, if you know a little bit about his life, he had some time of, uh, well, he had a time out, if you will. Um, 40 years into his life, he took a 40-year time out as he had been uh, involved in uh, killing an Egyptian and defending an Israelite, and that had been reported. He feared for his life, and so he left, and God had called him on this mountain uh, to lead his people. And there's this long dialogue as God reveals himself. It shows us what God is like when we see how God reveals himself to Moses. And, And ultimately, Moses comes back to Egypt and begins to lead his people out. And God says, here's how you'll know this is all my doing. When you come out, you're coming right back here, right back to this mountain. And on this mountain, God gives him Ten Commandments uh, for which this new nation, these Hebrew people, which are going to eventually dwell in the land that God has promised, this is how I want you to live. Okay, that's where the Ten Commandments come in, back at this mountain where Moses had once been called uh, through the burning bush instance. We're not going to do all the Ten Commandments, just one. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, because we're thinking about what is God like? What, 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 What... what is he like? And so uh, uh, Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath 
or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations and to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the command, very simply, is no images, no idols. Okay, don't make an idol for God. So I don't know what you first thought of when I asked, what is God like? But I sure hope you didn't use an image, right? Because images are forbidden. That is, there is no image to make, and there's a punishment for that, because God wants to be sure. Don't imagine God... Well, let's think about it. How many people could raise their hand and say that in your life you've seen God's provision as he's watched over you? Huh. Like an eagle has incredible eyesight and can fly and soar with such beauty and majesty and can see their prey way down. And an eagle would be a good representation of how God watches over us like an eagle would fly. And But don't do that. But why not? I mean, wouldn't an eagle be a good representation to remind us that God has watched over us like an eagle flies and watches over his prey? And so the problem with the image is not that the eagle is wrong because God has provided. You, you, you raised up your hand. You said, yeah, he watches over me or he's watched over my family. And, and an eagle might be a good image to imagine, but the problem is twofold. One is God's a lot more than an eagle, Right? I mean, an, an eagle is a good sort of imagery of their incredible eyesight and their way to watch over, but, but yet God isn't merely an eagle. He created eagles, but he's much more. So number one, his oversight is much greater than an eagle's eyesight. And number two, he's much more than just a watcher over God, right? He doesn't merely watch over. Maybe you'd think, boy, when I think about God, I think about strength, he is powerful. Think of a, think of a, a bull or, or maybe an ox. I mean, a big, powerful animal that you can harness and you could ultimately use to till fields. I know we use tractors now and so on, but still, the incredible power of maybe a bull or an ox or something, I mean, wouldn't that be a good representation of God on his power? And of course, the answer is, in one sense, yes, God is powerful and an, an ox is powerful, but in the other sense, well, God's power is nothing like an ox's, right? I mean, he's way more powerful. He created oxes, and furthermore, he isn't merely powerful, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't do justice. And so you can imagine image-making for, for gods. If we were going to study the gods of the ancient world, they started usually by using an animal, an eagle or an ox or a, a bull, and that would represent their various gods. And as they got more complex, what they would do is they would swap animal parts to try and show a more complicated god. So you'd have an image of a, of a body of an ox and the head of an eagle, right? And now you've got the, the strength represented in the, in the body, and you've got the eyesight or the oversight represented in the eagle's head, and you'd start to see all these strange creatures, and God says, don't do that, right? That's, that's the commandment, right? The commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth below or in the waters below. No image making. Don't represent me by an image, right? Pretty straightforward. Exodus 32. We're still at Mount Sinai, where they were back in Exodus 20. 
Exodus 32, we pick up the story here with Moses up on the mountain. If you remember, Moses goes up to dwell with God, to speak with God, and the people stayed down at the base of the mountain. Uh, They went to the very base at one point, but when God came down and sort of indwelt the whole area, they were so scared by his awesomeness, by his power, by his presence. They said, Moses, you go up, we'll stay away, and then you come down and tell us what God says. It's too, literally, awesome to encounter the living God. So Moses is up, the people are down, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Aaron is Moses' older brother, and they said, come, let us make gods who will go before us. For this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Hmm, we lost track of Moses. I mean, we know he went up, why don't we just, why don't we make an idol? I mean, let's make an idol. Let's make a physical. We've got to have some sense of what God is like. Let's make an image, okay? Now, you remember Exodus 20, verse 4, right? No image making, okay? Doesn't matter. They forgot Exodus 20, verse 4. They're going to make an image. Verse 2, Aaron answered them, take uh, off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Where would they have gotten gold earrings? Well, if you remember when they left Egypt, that God had, had orchestrated it, that the Egyptians gave them everything. Just please leave. And so they got earrings and and they probably got some Egyptian idols as well, amongst other things. But they got the gold of Egypt and they were able to take that with them. Verse 3, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. We got an image. Great. Well, maybe not great. Not great in the sense that we shouldn't have one, but great that we lost track of Moses, so at least we have an image. We got a calf now that, 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 that we can worship. Well, you probably know most of how Exodus 32 unfolds, because Moses does come down. Moses didn't lose track of Moses, just because the people lost track of him. And so let's pick it up in verse 19. 32 verse 19, when Moses approached the camp, he's coming down the mountain and now towards their camp, he saw the calf and the dancing and his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands. That is, God literally wrote on the two tablets and, and, and he threw those down and they actually uh, broke. <clears throat> um, there is, uh, uh, sorry, uh, tablets uh, down in the hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Uh, and then he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the Israelites drink it. So literally, we're eliminating this gold from ever being used again. You follow? That you'd ground to powder, you drink it, it's gone. It's, it's no longer, it's, it's gone. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. <clears throat> or sorry, uh, uh, verse uh, 21. Then he said to Aaron, uh, what did these people do to you that, let you, uh, th- that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to, uh, uh, to me, make us gods who will go before us as this fellow Moses who brought us out, out of Egypt. We don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whatever, uh, uh, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, huh, and out came a calf. I mean, I have no idea what happened. 
Okay? Now, I don't know with my youngest daughter, who's seven, Adria, whether she's read this passage, but we've had some very interesting explanations as to how certain things that have happened at home happened. And it's just, it's mostly magic that, that I don't know how that spilled, and I don't know why that broke, and I don't know why that's not put back, and, and, and all those kinds of things. So, nonetheless, we have some kind of a, a, a magical act here where gold thrown in the fire comes out calf-like. Let's see if Moses buys into this. Uh, Verse 25, Uh, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and become a laughing stock to their enemies. Keep that in mind. We've got to revisit that. They've become these people who are leaving Egypt and who will eventually make their way towards Canaan. Remember, we have no idea it's going to take 40 years yet. We just think they're on their way and they'll be going in. As it turns out, it's going to take quite a bit of time. But they're becoming a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Israelites, excuse me, all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and his friend and his neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. So the Levites wanted to be committed to the Lord, and so they are asked, because the people are dancing and are out of control, uh, as Moses has seen, that, that, that these Levites who are willing to be faithful deal with the problem, and that dealing was the murder of 3,000 people, the slaughter of 3,000 unfaithful people. And Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin, and if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my anger, uh, excuse me, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because what they had done with the calf Aaron made. No, no description there of the plague. Don't know how many it affected. Don't know whether it was death or whether it was some kind of physical ailment. We don't know anything about it other than that. So it's really, really serious, right? Exodus 20 verse 4, no images, no idols. Don't try and figure me out in the shape of a calf or an eagle or an ox or whatever else you might come up with. Don't do that. They do it. And literally 3,000 are slaughtered and the rest, there's some kind of a plague that affects them. Some of them, most of them, we don't know, right? It just, that's all what we read is, is what we get. So it's very, very serious that somehow we think that we can disobey the Lord, that there are severe consequences, okay? And so when we think, well, what is the Lord like? Don't think of an image, okay? Hmm. I mean, it's hard to know what should we think of. And and, and so we want to think through how the Lord reveals himself so that we can help to answer this type of question, what is the Lord like? What's God like? 
what, what is he like? Don't use an image. We see what happens when they do. Let's keep going. Exodus 33. Uh, so much fun. I know, Harry, you were wishing we were in Genesis, but we're nearby in case you need to flip back. <clears throat> Exodus 33, the next chapter, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Now, if you remember by this point, just before I start reading, if you remember that they, as they come out of the land uh, uh, of, of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea. You remember they go through the sea, God opens it, and then God closes it on the army, Pharaoh and his army, and, and, and they drowned and died. Now, no one's chasing them, and they're free, and they start to make their way. And then God makes this command that they're to build a special tent for God, We'll ultimately know that as the tabernacle. And then inside the tent, there's this special box, uh, very ornate and then covered with gold and, and, and all sorts of rules around that. And that ultimately will become known as the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's a special tent that God lives in so that he can dwell with his people. His people live in tents he'll live in a tent. And then a very special box that represents his presence that literally will lead the people when they're walking or be in the middle of the people when they're stopped and camping, okay? So that has all happened. You need to know that because now we'll pick up the story about the tent in Exodus 33, verse seven. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Okay, so this is a different tent. That's why I wanted to, the God's tent, the tabernacles in the middle of the people. This is some distance away, the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go up to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And wherever, excuse me, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. Well, the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and they worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent. So the people are staying at their own tents, but they're seeing Moses go to this special tent and they're seeing the, the presence of God represented in this pillar of cloud come down and, and, and sort of cover up the entrance to this special tent known as the tent of meeting and, that Moses is at and they would worship seeing the Lord come down and interact with Moses. That's what's going on. Whenever the people saw the pillar of the cloud, um, pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to their tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then <clears throat> Moses would remain, uh, would return to the camp and the young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. That is, Joshua is always sort of guarding that tent of meeting when Moses isn't there. We get that detail uh, from the end there. So God is me meeting with Moses face to face. That's what the text says, right? Everyone clear on that? That God is meeting with Moses face to face. Now, remember, no, no images. But in this case, there's, there's no image. God is meeting face to face, right? The Lord would speak to Moses, verse 11, face to face. Uh, what would that look like? Well, same way as one would speak to a friend, right? As I'm speaking to you, as you speak to each other, that's what was going on. Moses is speaking to God face to face. Must have been absolutely amazing what Moses experienced. Uh, let's keep going. Jump down to verse 18. Verse 18, <clears throat> Moses is interacting with God and ultimately comes to say, uh, then Moses said, he's speaking to God, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will come 
I, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, that is God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one might see my face and live. Okay? So, very simply, Exodus 33 and verses 7 to 11, the Lord speaks to Moses face to face. Then later on in the chapter, Moses says, I want to see you, your presence. And God says, okay, I'll let you see some of my presence, but not my face. Okay, everyone good? Good. All right, verse 21. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you might stand on a rock when the glory, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you'll see my back. But my face must not be seen. All right. Moses meets with God face to face. How? Well, the same way you would talk to a friend, face to face, okay? Moses says to God, I'd like to see you. I'd like to see your presence. And he goes, well... I can show you some of my presence, but not my face. So everyone's sort of following along what's going on. Doesn't it seem a little bit in the same chapter, they're meeting face to face and they're not allowed to see his face, right? So you, you remember that at the beginning, it's this cloud and God is literally speaking to Moses and, and he's, it's like meeting face to face, but he's not seeing God's face. He's seeing this cloud, right? He's seeing the cloud. And so Moses wants a little more. And so God says, yes, but we'll do it this way because you're not going to get to see my face. Now, remember, God is spirit. And so that's why I'm curious what you might have pictured when I say, what's God like? I mean, what does spirit look like? I hope you were thinking maybe vapor, right? That would be a good thing to picture, maybe, or mist, right? That's a nice thing to picture, Right? But picturing vapor or mist, that doesn't really remind us of our God, does it? So, so God says very clearly, you can't see my face, but I'm going to make this provision. I'm going to put you in the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to remove my hand. You're going to see from the back. You're going to get a sense, but you're not going to get everything. You're not going to get my face. Okay? So when they're meeting face to face, they're literally talking, but God's presence is represented by this cloud. When Moses asks, can I see your face? God says, no, but I'll show you a little more. And so we have this instance here at the end of Exodus 33, where they show us a little more. Now, thankfully, we're Christians. And this is where this becomes so much easier. Because as Christians, we don't merely get stuck in Exodus or Genesis. That is, we ultimately get the full revelation of God, and sometimes later in his revelation, he will explain what happened earlier in his revelation. Because if you're lost right now, you're in a really good spot, because you should be. Okay, why can he see his face and not see his face? Why is it a cloud? Why is his hand in the cleft and rock and is going to uncover and see the back? Why? What is all that? Thankfully, Paul tells us what's going on. First Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Paul thought it necessary amongst the trials and tribulations that the church at Corinth was facing and ultimately creating for themselves, that they would need this explanation. And so Paul explains what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 1. For, Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Okay, so we've got to kind of remember, now Paul's talking about our ancestors, that it would be the Jews, the, the, the Jewish people in the book of Exodus that are going to be called Hebrews. So it's the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, whatever name is you're going to be most comfortable with, that when God led them out, that you'll remember that he made his presence known with this pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Why? So everyone could see God. Nobody could say, Moses, Moses, you're going the wrong way. We, we, sh- we should go that way. No one could say that because Moses is just following the same cloud that everyone could see. Or at night, the same pillar of fire. So there is a presence of God, even though there isn't the face of God or the body of God. There is a presence of God that leads them out. And you remember, of course, that ultimately this, the, the miracle of miracles, although there's many of them in the, in, the, in the process of the Exodus, the biggest one is the dividing of the Red Sea, the people walking through on dry land, and then the closing of the Red Sea on the army that's, that's chasing them. So, Moses, uh, excuse me, Paul is reminding this church at Corinth, which is primarily a Gentile church, uh, about the, the, this past, okay? So he says, our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. Under the cloud, that is, we all followed God. That's what we did. We followed God through the desert, followed God to Mount Sinai, disobeyed God while Moses was up, and we did the, the calf thing that didn't go well, followed God some more, disobeyed, obeyed, grumbled, disobeyed, obeyed. You know, it went back and forth. We, we were faithful and we were faithless, but we followed God. Paul is making that point. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptized, they were the idea of immersion. They were were part of that story, part of following Moses uh, through and and with the cloud and and, and, uh, ultimately through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and the rock was Christ. Oh. Oh. Now, did that help us? Now, I'm not sure. The rock, you remember, well, the rock gets struck, and then water comes for it. Well, that's good. They were thirsty, and they got water from a rock. Then God told Moses, speak to the rock, different rock, but speak to it because we need water again. And Moses was so angry with the people that he spoke to it using a stick. Right? He struck it when he shouldn't have, and water came out. Right? Again, that water where that rock was Jesus. If we keep reading the New Testament, we'll find out the water was Jesus too. But anyway, uh, uh, and so Jesus is there in the desert in a way, in some kind of a spiritual sense that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so now we have God can't show his face. No one can see God's face and live but I'll put you in the cleft of the Savior, uh, rock. Well, I'm not sure which word would you like me to use. From the Exodus perspective, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, right? From Paul's perspective in 1 Corinthians 10, I'll put you in the hand of the Savior. Is that what he's saying? Are, Are we getting a vision of God by seeing the Savior? 
This is what Paul wants his audience, his Corinthian church audience to begin to understand. Verse three, they all drank, uh, they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered into the wilderness. That is, they ultimately had to wander for a generation because of their unfaithfulness and only their children got to go into their land, not, not, not the actual generation that, that uh, was uh, delivered from Egypt. So Paul has this interesting idea that Christ is the rock, which is interesting. There's quite a few of these uh, that we can come across in the New Testament where we never imagine, we just imagine when we were reading Exodus 33, we kind of imagined there'd be some kind of a rock with a step, right? And some kind of a little bit of a cave or entrance or something. And God's plan was tuck Moses in there. And then somehow God's hand, whatever that might be, would cover Moses. He walks by, he uncovers, sees something of the back, covers him back. Like that's just what we imagine, right? We're not going to imagine an image, are we? No, we won't imagine an image, so we'll imagine that, and now we find out that the rock, which is Christ. Hmm. Um, What we're going to see is what Christ reveals of God. Or, to rephrase the whole thing, you can't possibly correctly answer the question, what's God like, without the Savior? John chapter 14. All right, now I can tell you, Harry, we're talking about Jesus from John 14. The introduction's done, almost time to close in prayer. John 14. These introductions, they're crazy. John 14, John chapter 14. I don't know if any of you have been watching The Chosen. The Chosen is this... uh, It's meant to be a a seven-season series on the life of Christ. Uh, The first season has been out for a little while. It's something that you can watch. There's an app that lets you connect it to your TV and watch it that way. You can buy DVDs and so on. But they're recording this life of Jesus. They're trying to help us to see and understand what Jesus was like. And they're filling in some of the details. And they're making some things up, trying to figure it out. But they do a good job of trying to present how things may have happened uh, on the life of Jesus. And so uh, a lot of people are watching that right now. Now, their goal is to, I think their goal, if I remember correctly, is to have one billion people see the life of Jesus this way. And so they're right now releasing the second season and raising money to start filming the third season and so on. But it's all about the life of Christ. And so a lot of people have been uh, talking about Jesus' life and what Jesus is like. And man, I saw this on The Chosen. Was it really like that? Could it have been like that? And some of those things, it's an interesting thing if that interests you. Um, to, uh, to follow that, you can uh, watch it digitally on, on a device or a computer or something. You can do that all for free, and, and uh, there's a variety of, of ways to do that. But the, the interesting thing we've been watching at our house with our oldest daughter is it makes her ask a lot of questions about Jesus. And so I thought, well, let's, let's study Jesus. So now I can finally tell you, Harry, that, that um, well, I'll say this. We've got an image, Right? I mean, don't make an image, Exodus 20, verse 4. 
but we're going to get an image. I'm going to give you the image. You don't create the image yourself. You might end up with an ox, with an eagle's head, and you know the shoulders of a bull or something. Uh, that's not going to be right. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the image. Here we go. John chapter 14. I'm in John chapter 9. <clears throat> John chapter 14, do not let your, Jesus is speaking, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Okay, so we're going to go back and forth with this language about God and me, me being Jesus in this sense, God and me. You believe God, Jesus is talking to his disciples. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going, now Jesus is there on earth, I'm going there to my father's house to prepare, <clears throat> to prepare a place for you. <clears throat> Excuse me, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and then you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Okay, so Jesus has been trying to help connect them to the Father and me, the Father and me, me being the Son, Jesus, not, not, not me. And, and so the, the, there's this idea of Jesus trying to explain this relationship and, and help his disciples begin to understand. And he is ultimately going to go back to the Father. He's going to prepare a place. And we're all sitting here going, nodding, well, well we get it. Yeah, but they didn't read John 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. I mean, they're living it. So we're nodding, going, we get it. Jesus ascends, he dies on the cross, conquers death and resurrected victory. Three days later, 40 days later, ascends to the right hand of the Father. 10 days later, sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. The, the Son is at the right hand of the Father, praying over us, watching over us, and preparing for the time when he will one day return and take us to be with him and will remain in his presence. I mean, that's clear to us, and it's not clear to them. Five, verse five, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is where the chosen is good because the disciples never know where they're going, and Jesus is leading them, and it is, they, they, it's, some of it's quite humorous as you realize that they never really follow what's going on because Jesus doesn't tell them. They, they have to uh, experience it. And so Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Remember, Jesus said, verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus is talking about to my father's house, which would be in heaven, which is eternity, which is a spiritual reference. And they're thinking, man, we can't even figure out we going north or south tomorrow. We, we, don't, we don't know what you're doing. Jesus says, verse uh, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way go to the Father, right? I am the way to go to the Father. I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is, the only way to get to the Father is through me. I am the only way to the Father. There is one way to the Father, it's through me, Jesus says, through Jesus, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do not know him. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you do know him and have seen him. That's what Jesus says. I am the way. You do know the father, and you've even seen the father. Philip immediately, hand goes up. Um, Lord, uh, show us the father. That'll be good. We would love to see the father. 
What if we sat in marathon class one day and Rome comes up and says, what's God like? I mean, what are we going to say? What are we going to picture? Show us the Father, then we'll know what to say. Jesus answered, don't, uh, don't you know me, Philip? Even, if I, even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm giving it to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Wow. So Jesus is working at trying to explain this relationship. We have the Father who we're trying to imagine, we're trying to picture. The Father has forbid us from sort of coming up with an image. Don't, don't assemble a variety of animals or people or whatever uh, and, and suggest that that somehow represents the Father. And we can see the examples from the Old Testament. But, but then I'll give you an image. Here's the image. So it's very important that when we study God's word, we, we study it all the way through. Because some people go, hey, no images. When it comes to God, no images. And so someone's, you, you know, got this, this painting of, of Christ washing the disciples' feet, and they're like, no images. Well, what did, do you want the disciples to close their eyes when Christ come? I mean, what's Jesus? He's an image. As a, lot of, as a matter of fact, that's precisely what he's called. Just listen. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's Jesus? He's the image. That's what Jesus is. He is the one who reveals to us the Father. So when the Father begins the process of revelation in the book of Genesis, and the book of Exodus, he reminds them early on, don't create your own image. You'll do a bad job of that. And even that we stumble on because it ends up that they try and create an image. And again, it's accidental. You remember what happened, right? The, the gold went into the fire and a calf. Couldn't believe it, right? The fire chose right? That's what Aaron was telling Moses. The fire came up with the calf idea. So, and, and that, of course, causes death and plague and so on. And, and even when Moses, who got to talk with God face to face, the idea of God revealing himself in this pillar of cloud, and then Moses says, well, can I see your face? And, and God says, well, no, no one can see my face, but I'll put you in the cleft of my son, Right? I mean, in the cleft of the rock is what it says, but Paul tells us that the rock was the sun. The rock is Christ. And now Jesus tells Philip and tells Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what you need to see. When you want to think of God, think of his son, who is 
the image, 2 Corinthians 4, Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. So number one, if you want to see God's glory again, you're looking right back at the son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. That is, the son is the image of the father. Or if we want to say this a different way, the son comes to reveal to us the father. Jesus comes to reveal, to show us what God looks like, because it's very clear, no image will do. No man-made image will do. So what's God like? Think of the Son. The Son reveals the Father. As a matter of fact, that relationship is really interesting because God reveals himself to us relationally. Look just a few chapters later, John 17. Go to John 17. Pick it up in verse 24. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. John is the only one of the four gospels to record this, and Jesus is praying to the Father. And of course, Jesus is God, and the Father is God, and Jesus is about to be crucified and and will die and then resurrect, and 40 days later, he will return to the right hand of the Father, and yet he's praying to God the Father for all of us. Not only them, first century people, but but us as well. It would be great to do the whole prayer, but just let's pick up one brief part, verse 24. Father, Jesus prays, I want those who who you have given to me, excuse me, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me, the son says to the father, before the creation of the world. That is, if you want to know what God has always been doing, you want to get to pre-Genesis 1.1, right? In Genesis 1.1, God creates everything. Well, what was he doing before that? If God is eternal, that means he existed before he created everything. Very simply, he's a father loving his son. That's what we picture. And so what does God give us so that we picture that correctly? The Son. He sends the Son, the Son comes in flesh. Some people say, I don't know how you could be a Christian. I mean, you believe all these things you can't see. That's not what we do. We believe things that have been seen, that people testify to, that was seeable. We don't have blind faith. If you have blind faith, you believe anything and everything and nothing. We have faith that's rooted in eyewitness accounts. We have a lot of definitions of faith that, we've, that we sometimes use or we hear spoken and so on. I've been working on one. I'm, I'm going to give it to you. This is what my definition of faith is. I think this is what we see in Scripture because I want to acknowledge what Scripture does to us for faith. So, you're going out this evening. It, it works out that there's your favorite restaurants available. It's not very busy and still, you know, COVID, not a lot of going out. So, you're going out and, and you, you arrive and they come and they welcome you and they seat you at a table that you like and you're there with a friend or your spouse or whatever the, the right thing is and you're excited to go to this nice place, a nice meal and so on. You go and sit down. You, your, your waiter or waitress hasn't come yet, but you're looking around and you're seeing lovely people sitting all around you receiving their 
their food and, and, and eating and, and some finishing up and some ordering dessert and, and, and some still munching on the appetizers and so on. You're seeing the wait staff serving and so on. This is what faith is. Faith is believing you too will be served, right? In other words, it's not blind. We've seen what God does. Faith is going, yeah, he can do it for me as well. It's not blind. That's what God gives us. He gives us the image. So don't create your own, Exodus 20, verse 4, right? Well, I think we should just, you know, throw gold in the, in the, in the fire and see what happens. Okay, no good happens, right? 3,000 die, plague comes, God deals with the people's sin, which sort of goes on and on and on from there. Uh, but God then ultimately says, I will reveal. And, and it isn't just... Four minutes. Can we do this again? Can we just do this whole thing again? All right. I, Isaiah will just do that. I'll just show you the whole thing different way. I'll show you the same thing. We'll close in prayer. Here we go. Don't ask any questions because we have no time. Isaiah 6. Watch this. Here's the same thing. Isaiah 6. Let's do it from Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Okay. You probably know Isaiah 6. Uh, Isaiah, wonderful prophet of God. Here we go. Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. In the year that King Uzziah died. I, this is Isaiah writing, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a, well, who did he see? You saw the Lord. Okay, good. Um, I saw the Lord uh, high and exalted, sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim with their six wings. This is a specific type of angel. With two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet, and two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah gets this heavenly vision, and he sees the Lord high and exalted and sitting on a throne. I wonder what Isaiah saw. I mean, we don't even have language like this before Isaiah, high and exalted, sitting on a throne. But we do get language like this again from Isaiah in chapter 52. Go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, picking it up in verse 13. Isaiah is now prophesying about someone who will come one day. This is about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And Isaiah is prophesying about this one who will come, and he's being described in the terms of a, of a servant who suffers. We often call Isaiah f- uh, 52 and 53 the, the, the chapters or passages of the suffering servant. Here's the picture. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's the next time you get that language of being highly exalted, lifted up, raised. So Isaiah has this vision. He gets to see the throne room, and what does he see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up, raised and exalted. And then later Isaiah, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks God's very words and says that one day there will be a suffering servant who will be lifted up. And you probably know the rest of 52 and 53. He'll be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes we will be healed, right? We, we know this passage is the passage of Jesus dying on the cross, high and lifted up. And so what did Isaiah see? You don't get to see the face of God and live. We've already learned that, right? 
but he saw the Lord exalted on his throne, high and lifted up. And, and then he prophesies that one day the suffering servant will come and he'll be high and lifted up. And then in John chapter 3, Nicodemus trying to figure out as Israel's teacher, what do we do with Jesus? He meets with him secretly at night and says, who are you? Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. And just before our favorite passage in John 3, that is John 3, 16, where God so loves the world that he gives his only son, just before that in verse 14 and 15, we read this. Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, back to the story that happens in Numbers 21, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes might have eternal life in him. That is, Jesus tells Nicodemus that when Moses, back in the desert, Numbers chapter 21, the people were disobedient, God sends snakes. He does different things. He, he has the Levites kill 3,000 of them. He sends a plague, and this, this one, he goes, snakes. And he sends the snakes. The people are getting bit. They're dying. They cry out to Moses, we're so sorry. Pray to God, send away the snakes. God, number one, doesn't send away the snakes. He doesn't stop the snakes from biting, nor does he even take the venom from the snakes. He lets the snakes stay. He lets the snakes bite, and he lets, lets the venom kill. However, fashion on this post a bronze snake, and, and if the people, while they're dying from their snake bites, if you look up at the snake, you can be saved. And Jesus goes, I'm the snake. I'm the bronze snake. I must be lifted up. That is, Jesus lets us see what's God, what God is like. How many people... Truth be told, when I asked you what's God, what is God like at the very beginning of this lesson, how many immediately thought of Jesus? How many pictured Jesus right away? A couple of you. That's what we picture. We're Christians. We know exactly what God looks like. He looks like a little baby in a manger with Mary and Joseph looking over wondering, what on earth are we going to do? Right? What does God look like? He looks like the kind of God who would go and eat with sinners and tax collectors, and the people who no one likes, he's eating with them and among them, right? What's God like? He's the kind of God who, instead of going to Jerusalem and trying to become famous and popular, ministers out who knows where, in small towns, and cares for the down and outers. He's the kind of God who would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, or the meek, he, he, he is, he's Jesus. That's what God is like. That's what God wanted us to get. That's why he forbid the image. Because Jesus is the image. The image of the invisible God. When you need to see God, even in the Old Testament, we need Jesus to come in. We need Jesus on the rock for Moses to pass by and, and for Moses to see whatever it is that Moses got to see the backside of God. We need Jesus. That's what we see. Who did Jacob wrestle with? Well, if you read Genesis very carefully, Jacob wrestled with an angel, and later in the New Testament, you find out the angel was Jesus, right? So we read the whole Bible together, and we recognize as Christians, as believers who have the whole Bible, that we can see the insights of the New Testament, push them back into the Old Testament, and we get a clearer picture, a picture that the original people, like Moses, never saw. What is God like? 
He's exactly like Jesus. Jesus' role in coming was to reveal to us what God is like. That's what he did. That's what he does. The Bible reveals to us Jesus. Jesus reveals to us the Father. What's the Father been? Well, from all eternity before he ever created, the Father has been a life-giving Father who's been loving his Son. That's the picture of what God is like, and that's the picture that our world needs to see, because that God is beautiful. The God they reject is a very ugly God. The God of all creation, Jesus, is beautiful. Father, we're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, We're grateful that you sent him, and even though none of us lived on earth when that happened, that there were eyewitnesses who recorded that for us. And that word has carefully been preserved, given first through your Holy Spirit, and then preserved through time, that we can can read it and study it even today in our own language. And in many languages around the world, that you have given us your son, and while we don't see him directly, we read the eyewitnesses of those who did. And we know precisely what you look like. And it's a beautiful picture, and we often don't think of you as beautiful. We think of you as a rule giver, and yet you're the one who actually speaks life and light into all creation. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue through this week and whatever this week holds for us, that we would think about your Son, about Jesus, and the beautiful picture he gives us of who you are. And that, Father, that our lives, our thoughts, our actions would be transformed into more of his image so that we might be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.